I should like, if I may, to share with you, brothers and sisters, today a few thoughts about the milieu in which the modern Mormon finds himself, because being in the world and yet not of it is a very, very special challenge. And I think I'm going to try to make about nine points as candidly as I can in sharing my thoughts with you. The first thing that we must remember is that we see the world and the people in it differently because the gospel of Jesus Christ is like the lens of a cosmic kaleidoscope, which, instead of seeing man and life and the universe as senseless, unconnected fragments, enables us to see pattern, design, and beauty and purpose in the universe. And with this particularized vision, it gives us a special sense of proportion about the things that matter most. It means that we can understand better than the world what Jesus said when he counseled us seriously, better to pluck out an offending, lusting eye than to suffer eternal consequences, because what we do in this little sliver of time skews all of eternity. This same special perspective about life and man and the universe can make so many differences to us in so many ways that I feel at times, as members of the Church, we are not fully conscious of how different that perspective is. Second, we possess a few scriptural insights concerning what lies ahead for the people on this planet. Until recently, our cataclysmic concepts about the future tended to set us apart from the secular world. Now, as you have observed, secular prophecies are increasingly apocalyptic. Men vie with each other to describe their own view of doomsday and hardly an adjective escapes use. Since secular prophets are often long on description and short on prescription, we must remember, in addition to these apocalyptic insights of the scriptures, that the scriptures are even more prescriptive than they are descriptive in terms of what lies ahead. Third, we are on a different timeline. And being on a different timeline, we are organizationally and conceptually inclined towards the less glamorous approach in changing human behavior. The gospel of Jesus Christ emphasizes changing behavior in an individual way with inner controls and an ultimate reliance on the ultimate governance of self. And that's a very slow and unspectacular way to bring about change. It is so at odds with those outside the Church who want sudden spectacular change that we sometimes appear to others to be unconcerned actors on the stage of life while they sincerely and feverishly want to change many outer things, hoping something will make a dramatic difference. But alas, so many things actually change so little in response to that approach. San Pedro of Alcantara observed, The trouble is that no one wants to correct himself, and everyone meddles at correcting others, and thus everything stays as it is. And for your generation of young idealists who want to bring about change, a deep commitment to the route the gospel shows us, building change on an individual basis with inner controls, I would simply say there is no other way. Everything else, in a sense, is a delusion. In addition to trying to correct others instead of ourselves, some among us want others to pay the price for their failures. For instance, Abortion laws seek to place the burden for unwise behavior on the unborn instead of on mortals who need to practice chastity 
and on husbands who need to be more considerate. Many in the world cry for more and more outer controls to save us from ourselves, when many things can only be achieved by inner controls. In fact, the ecology of effectiveness in human affairs suggests to me that concentrating on the quality of life in the home is ultimately the best way to raise the quality of life in society. It is not glamorous. It is slow. It takes time, but it is lasting. If, for instance, we could have a concern for justice in the home experienced and discussed, this could do much to assure concern for the underprivileged, which could undergird wise legislation and even make such legislation unnecessary. One of the best ways for us to replicate love and trust and discipline and concern in society is for children and youth to experience these qualities, to know their fruits, and thereafter to be refused any satisfaction from a world that is devoid of such qualities. Our failures in the home, of course, call for compensatory action. I am not opposed to compensatory action. Because compensatory programs are often very appealing to the young, however, crash jobs often are. One of my chief counsels to you today would be <clears throat> that time spent in the hangar doing needed preparation and maintenance work is never as glamorous as putting foam on the runway. And building a more happy home may have no immediacy of impact, not the kind of glamour that counseling in a juvenile detention center has. Both are necessary, the work in the hangar and spreading foam on the runway, but one is clearly where the emphasis of our society should fall in the economy of heaven. The quiet Christianity required to build good homes is sometimes unfortunately upstaged by the more conspicuous Christianity symbolized by the many ways in which we are always running out and putting foam on the runway. Similarly, stressing chastity constitutes preventive medicine of high order. Two eminent historians, Will and Ariel Durant, writing about what they had learned from the laboratory of history, note that the unchecked expression of sexual desires ignores the reality that, quote, sex is a river of fire that must be banked and cooled by a hundred restraints if it is not to consume in chaos both the individual and the group." End of quote. Jacob wrote of soul scars that go with gross unchastity. And when he said, many hearts died pierced with deep wounds. Again, while we are blessed with and have a need for the principle of repentance in each of our lives, prevention is still the primary task and orientation of the gospel. Alcoholism is a terrible plague, causing thousands of deaths on our highways and maimings and beatings in homes. And there is only really one remedy, and that is abstinence. And anyone who approaches the problem in any other way is not offering us a final solution. If we're serious about the problem of alcoholism, we ought to concentrate on the real solution and still support efforts such as Alcoholics Anonymous, where people have been victimized by this disease. But we must never become confused with doing the things of most worth and still not leaving the others undone. We must never get so excited about putting foam on the runway we forget to do our work in the hangar in the maintenance and preparation of the home. It is in this sense that orthodoxy 
the tying together of all the powerful doctrines of Jesus Christ is the key to human happiness. Because the gospel is really the counsel of a superintelligence as to how we may survive and progress in a cold universe that responds only to law. Man didn't get to the moon with random trajectories and with each astronaut doing his own thing. The price for reaching the moon was obedience to universal law. In many ways, God has paid man the supreme compliment of believing in us and believing in our ability to change and improve, slowly but lastingly, rather than having God holding us in a kind of condescending cosmic contempt. He believes in us, and that's as important as his loving us. We will never build the city of man with justice and love in which there is no hate, no malice, and no poverty until we can rule ourselves. In Proverbs we read, He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. Without self-control and self-esteem, which the gospel can provide, you and I would be so vulnerable to the pressures from without in so many ways that one must conclude we cannot complete our quest for that city on the scale of quality about which the gospel tells us, unless we remember that our first task is to rule over our spirit. Fourth, we possess some absolute truths given to us by revelations, which, when we have applied them, will put us on the straight and narrow way. And we are further told in the scriptures there is none other way for salvation. All of this suggests to me a kind of ecclesiastical exclusivity about the Church which sometimes embarrasses a few of our members, for it implies not only an institutional supremacy—the Church is the only way for salvation—but also it implies a conceptual superiority with regard to salvational things. I am aware that some of the young get uncomfortable being in that kind of situation. My suggestion to you is to recapture, if you can, the circumstances in which the Prophet Joseph Smith entered the grove. He didn't go into the grove seeking to become a prophet or to found a church. His operating assumption in the spring of 1820 was that one of the contending sects was probably right and that his task was to find out which one he should join. God's reply may seem to us, from our limited perspective, to be a harsh indictment. And parenthetically, this should remind us that, in a sense, God cares very little about, cosmic, or about cosmetic public relations and everything about human relations. The Theophany at Palmyra displayed God's perfection in his attributes of truth and love. He loved us enough to appear, and having appeared, he told the truth, harsh as it may have sounded. Joseph Smith was equally truthful and faithful in reporting that episode. He said he could do nothing else, for I had seen a vision, I knew it, and I knew that God knew it. And inasmuch as many of us know the same basic truths that he learned at Palmyra, that there is a living God and that his Son is Jesus the Christ who is resurrected, we have the same solemn obligation to report our personal palmyras, our tiny theophanies in which we learn by the witness of the Spirit and experience the same basic and essential truths. And we cannot hold back from mankind 
what we have both seen and heard in our lives, even if at times we are uncomfortable with the notion of ecclesiastical exclusivity that is associated with the Church of Jesus Christ. We can't shrink from that fact. For our special mission isn't a measure of the worth of others. It is really a measure of how vital and demanding that role each of us has will be in serving all these other men and women on this planet. Paul's counsel to Timothy still applies, therefore. Take heed to thyself and the doctrine. Continue in them. In doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. In that sense, brothers and sisters, it is not just for our own sake, but for the sake of others, that we should sanctify ourselves, that they may hear us. Fifth, we need to understand in a more special way than many of us now do how great the weight is that God places on experience while we are in mortality. Witness his response to the anguished prophet in Liberty Jail when the Father, through the Son, observed that all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. Our Father is a loving Father who wants us to have the happiness that results not from mere innocence but from proven righteousness. Therefore, he will at times not deflect life's harsh learning experiences that may come to each of us, even though he may help us in coping with them. The more I reflect upon the nature of our Father's relationship to us, the more I am persuaded that God refuses to give his children an aspirin for treating the consequences of sin when what we need is surgery. He will refuse to give us a rub-down and make us feel good when what we need are splints and a cast for our broken spirit. He is not a silent, indifferent monarch in the sky, nor is he an indulgent grandfather who will give his children the incomplete therapy of partial truth. Only a portion, of course, of what God knows can we understand, and so much of what he asks us to avoid we must avoid by simple faith. We don't know the unknowable reasons which lie behind his divine don't. This leaves us in a position like that of Adam, who did things because he said, I know not, save the Lord commanded me. There are some things we do by that kind of obedient faith. There are other things we do when we know spiritually that what we're doing is right, but we can't articulate it to others. And one of the frustrations you will have in relation to your peers in the world is the frustration Ammon had when he said, Behold, I cannot say the smallest part which I feel. The tongue cannot transmit the tacit knowledge that lies within many of us of spiritual things which we know to be true and which are valid, but which are beyond the threshold of our powers of articulation. Sixth. We need always to make allowance in the kingdom for the fact that this is a divine church, but it's full of imperfect people. Indeed, the net gathereth of every kind. Some members among us have an unfortunate and exclusionary condescension or passivity towards others and toward the problems of the world. Other members have a quiet certitude which causes them to assert their testimonies in action humbly because the Spirit has witness to them, and they witness to others in order to maintain their integrity, and they tell others the truths about salvational things 
as they were, as they are, and as they shall become. These two kinds of members read the same scriptures, but one disengages Jonah-like, almost with delight in his resignation, while the other member will not leave his post in the turbulent Nineveh so long as there is a single soul to be saved. Probably the differing response is rooted in our differing capacity to love. In many ways, the proper model for young Latter-day Saints is not Jonah in terms of his behavior at Nineveh, but rather Joseph, who rendered significant service as the Prime Minister of Egypt. Joseph, we need to remember, was the overseer of Potiphar's domain prior to playing that same role on a larger scale for Pharaoh. Joseph rendered remarkable public service in an alien culture and yet kept his principles intact. He was described as, quote, a man in whom the Spirit of God is. None is so discreet and wise as thou art. This is a man who was prepared in his home, whose integrity and honesty are remarkable, who was chaste in spite of great temptation, who had the capacity to build trust in others who did not share his value system. Joseph also had a remarkable resiliency. He refused to become bitter as he encountered real personal injustice in life and as people continually disappointed him. He was large of soul and deeply forgiving. His generosity of spirit with those who had once scorned him, his own brothers, found him later weeping in gratitude because he could help them in, t in the time of their great poverty and need. He had forgiven them the pain he once suffered at their hands as a younger brother when they hated him so much, the scripture says, that they could not speak peaceably unto him. This generous, large-souled man who rendered public service in an alien culture and kept his values intact is for me a very appropriate model for the young Latter-day Saint. When we have the absolute truths and apocalyptic insights the gospel gives us, these can, unless we perfect our love and make progress, produce some behavioral anomalies. It can cause a Jonah-like response to the problems of life. But love leads us into the fray, not away from Nineveh. It leads us into service for mankind just as Jesus was involved with mankind. For as Chesterton observed of the Master, he carried his five wounds in the front of the fray. But some among us want involvement without giving themselves, and there is no way. Some want the wonders of religion without the work, and there is no way. Others want the thrill of theology without the hard doctrine, and there is no way. When we are serious about change and improvement, it is not enough merely to leave Egypt. One must also travel to the Promised Land. And the journey after getting on the safe side of the Red Sea of Repentance is long and hard and unglamorous. And this, too, sets us apart in terms of our style of life. We must make place for the gospel—and this is my seventh and next to last point— and the Church more generously in our lives, if we are to grow both in our capacity to feel and our capacity to act. Your education here, the media, and the scriptures drive out your circle of concern so that it is large and that it is appropriate and fitting that it be large. 
but within each of our circles of concern is a smaller circle of competency, the things we can really do something about. I am grateful to belong to a Church that helps us drive that inner circle out, too, so that we are more and more competent as we care more and more about the world around us. C.S. Lewis observed, The more often a man feels without acting, the less often he will be able to act, and in the long run, the less often he will be able to feel. In countless ways, the Church not only enlarges our circle of concern, but it enlarges our circle of competency if we will be willing to be involved. And eighth, brothers and sisters, <clears throat> we are custodians of a very special doctrine, the doctrine of immortality. In the spring of 1820, I venture most Christians believed in it. Many do not today. And while I admire the humanistic heroism of decent people who persist in goodness despite of, in spite of their agnosticism, we should see others differently because of this powerful doctrine of immortality. For ours is no mere biological brotherhood <clears throat> in a brief encounter fashioned on this planet, but ours are relationships that will persist for millions of years, and we should so see each other and relate to each other. Our friendships ought to be particularly rich. Our homes ought to be particularly loving. And in countless ways, if we are serious about immortality, that seriousness should show up in the way we behave toward each other. In summary, then, we see the world, we see life, we see men, we see death differently. We do not see this as a random mutant planet about to be enveloped in nothingness. It is a special place. It was prepared for a purpose. In the words of Isaiah, the Lord created it to be inhabited. From this experience on this planet, you and I will take with us some imperishable traits, and this is the only kind of luggage that can ever really clear with celestial customs. Nothing else goes in. And if we're serious, we need to be serious about the kind of luggage we're preparing to take with us. We ought to be stewards on this planet and approach it and its one-crop resources as carefully as Adam dressed the garden. Even in establishing dominion over the earth, ours ought to be a righteous dominion. Still, this is not a place we should be reluctant to leave. Chesterton said that Christian courage rests on a love of life which is willing to take the form of a willingness to die. It is not a disdain for life or a disaffection for life. We love life, and that's why it hurts so much when it is interrupted. But Alma counseled us, we need not look upon death with any degree of terror, if we believe. I am grateful for the words of King Benjamin, and it's almost as though he wrote them for you in this decade of time in view of your abundant and, I think, wonderful idealism. When he said, if we can apply the gospel, we will have in this life a knowledge of that which is just and true and that we will render to every man according to which is his due, and that we would not have a mind to injure one another, but will live peaceably one with another, that we will rear our families without fighting and quarreling, teaching them to love one another and to serve one another, and that we would care for the needy. Those are the end signs of regeneration, a concern for peace and justice and brotherhood and love and poverty.
there is no way to achieve these that is real without the application of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives individually. Most of the changes that the world falsely rejoices in are cosmetic changes. Nothing has really changed under the surface. Only when, in the words of Alma, we experience that mighty change of heart is something happening that will make human history better and different. In a sense, therefore, brothers and sisters, the world has the slogans and the gospel has the solutions. If they are applied, they will carry us to a state of happiness which hath no end. With such a great message, can we afford not to prepare ourselves, as I hope so many of you are doing at this good university, to serve others Joseph-like, and not the profound contraction from life that the Jonah response represents? With such a great message, can we afford not to be articulate in our homes and wherever we may be? For passivity or inarticulateness on our part about this marvelous work and a wonder can diminish the faith of others, can cause them to question the credibility of our commitment. Austin Farr observed, Though argument does not create belief, the lack of it destroys belief. What seems to be proved may not be embraced, but what no one shows the ability to defend is quickly abandoned. Rational argument does not create belief, but it nourishes a climate in which belief may flourish. It is your task to be that generation of articulate young members of the Church in a universal, multicultural Church to carry it off on your backs in this point in space and time. May God bless us all to be worthy of our callists, to be articulate in them, to have a sense of proportion worthy of the gospel and the perspective it gives. And I witness to you that this is the work of Jesus Christ, that we have among us a living prophet, a man of immense personal modesty, Joseph Fielding Smith, a man of immense personal integrity is Joseph Fielding Smith. I witness further to you that for me the witness of the Spirit which came long ago has been joined by two other witnesses—the witness of the intellect, though feeble, that the gospel is true, and the witness of experience which shouts that there is no other way to bring about the changes and the happiness we want. And for these, my three witnesses, I report to you that this is his work and we are his servants. And I do this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.